my name is Nancy Ketz, and I'm president-elect of NYSEFELT, and I'm chair of the NYSEFELT Colloquium. The format for today's session is going to be a facilitated conversation. Our panelists are going to address a series of three questions, at the end of which you will be invited to ask questions either to the whole group or to individuals. At that time, we're going to paraphrase your question into the microphones so that the questions will be heard along with the answers on the audiocast. Right now, it is really my honor to introduce to you our distinguished panel today. At my far left is Bill Heller, as he looks around to see who they are. <laughs> Bill Heller, who's a frequent pre presenter at all of our NYSEFELT functions, also at NECTFEL and also at ACTFEL. He was the 2009 NYSEFELT Colloquium keynote speaker, and he's presently a Spanish teacher at Perry Central School District. To his right is John Webb. John is a past president of NYSEFELT in 1990. He was the 2003 NECTFEL conference chair and the 2004 winner of the Tersey Distinguished Speaker Award. He's presently director of the Teacher Preparation Program at Princeton University. To my immediate left is Vicki Mike, and Vicki is a Spanish teacher at Horseheads High School. She's a frequent presenter at local, state, and national conferences. She's 2009 New York State Teacher of the Year, and she is the 2009 NECTFL nominee to Actful Teacher of the Year, also NYSEFELT Treasurer. So thank you to our panelists. The first question they're going to address today on practices that inspire is, what do you consider to be the current best practices? And Bill's going to begin. Well, <clears throat> when thinking about the current best practices, I realized there's a lot of junk out there. Um, Promises of fluency without effort or practice. I'm sure you've all heard the Rosetta Stone commercials yourselves. Um, there are also a lot of bandwagons that can tempt us to take our eyes off what is the nature and goals of language learning. And while the innovations pro promoted by these bandwagons can offer us a lens by which we can examine our practice, they can't become ends in and of themselves whether it's multiple intelligences, differentiated instruction, or whatever the panacea offered up by the gurus at ASCD, our goal is to help students increase their proficiency in using a world language to communicate within a cultural context. Any techniques that don't contribute to that goal are a waste of our time. But I still think we have a long way to go in realizing even the true communicative methodology within the framework of the national standards. But I feel we're getting closer to making language proficiency for all an attainable goal at the nexus of three significant trends. One, assessment. As much as testing has become anathema to teachers, the development of techniques to better utilize for formative and performance-based assessments as a tool for curricular alignment has made us more focused on how we spend our class time to maximize the development of proficiency. The cycle of instruction, assessment, reflection is becoming a way of thinking for many more teachers. What we need to do, though, is to develop good, valid, reliable assessments that are as much as possible linked to the actual or common European uh, framework proficiency levels. I would point to the work done by uh, Telka Falk at the Pittsburgh Public Schools on a FLAP grant in using technology-mediated assessments 
to get all students to actable intermediate low proficiency before graduation as a prototype worth exploring. And all of their materials, Pittsburgh Public Schools for FLAP is online that you can look at because it was done by a federal gr grant, it's publicly available to you. The second trend I see is, of course, the inter, uh, integration of technology. When I switched over to teaching Spanish 23 years ago, it was difficult, time-consuming, and expensive to uh, provide high-quality, authentic materials. If you didn't live in a bigger city, the only way you could really get good, current, authentic materials was to make pilgrimage to the target country and schlep back suitcases full of what we called realia. The Internet and Web 2.0 applications have completely revolutionized our access to high-quality source materials. The challenge for us now is wading through the treasures and selecting the best and creating ways for our students to understand their significance and meaning. And the third trend that I observe is um, the trend of thematic curriculum. Uh, back when Alice Omaggio Hadley published the first edition of her seminal work, Teaching Language in Context, language teachers began to examine the potential for language teaching to be something more than providing instruction in a collection of linguistic elements. Combined with the advocacy for a content-based and content-related FLESS curriculum um, by Helena, Helena Curtin and uh, Carol Pasola Dahlberg, we're now seeing a burgeoning of using relevant, universal thematic content as a hook and as a vehicle for language teaching. And the next iteration of the AP in Spanish and French will be based on rich, robust, and universal theme. As my dear friend and mentor, Marilyn Barretta, who's here today, is fond of reminding folks, if you're going to teach students to communicate, then you should also give them something worthwhile about which to communicate. And I'll toss to well, I'm, you know, I'm so glad that you said what you said, <laughs> because very honestly, um, when, uh, and like, like any good panel, we really didn't talk about what we were going to say in advance. So what you're seeing here really is, is pretty um, authentic and uh, the result of um, some serious original thinking. But when, when I was faced with this question of what are, do you consider to be the best current practices, I thought about um, a three-year research project that um, I did here in New York City um, when I was at Hunter College before I left to go to Princeton. And it was an examination of what we thought was going to be an examination of most successful practices when working with heritage language learners. And we identified 100 teachers in New York City who had been named by their principals as most effective when working with a heritage language population. And we spent three years with them, um, interviewing them, observing them, interviewing their students, um, and then conducting some additional research on the side. We thought we were going to emerge with this incredible book of effective practices that we could then pass on to prospective teachers um, when working with that population. And what we discovered was that there were almost no effective practices that we included in that book. It to me, that research 
project was an absolute revelation. But that, that research pointed us in the most interesting direction. And it really is what Bill said at the outset, that you've got to have a program that is decidedly and solidly anchored in the concept of student learning being a process of learning to perform the essential communicative functions of language. Socializing, providing and obtaining information, persuasion, and expression of opinion. And when everything that a teacher does is solidly anchored in those, how many are the four communicative functions, and whenever you plan for instruction, you ask yourself, what communicative function am I having the students perform as I carry out my lesson? Miraculously, these effective practices emerge. We can talk all we want about effective practices. I'm, I'm one who never liked these p the sessions at conferences on what do you do Monday morning, even though those were the sessions that were always most heavily attended, because I felt that they focused our instruction on practice, teaching practices, if you will, shticks, for want of a better word, as as, as opposed to understanding exactly what it is that we are supposed to be doing with our students. And what we're supposed to be doing is teaching them to socialize, provide and obtain information, persuade and express opinion and emotion. And then if all of the practices that you use, all of the teaching activities that you use are based on the performance of those functions, they're going to be good. They're going to involve student interaction with each other. Um, and that's what we want to have happen in a foreign language classroom. As far as the heritage language students were concerned, there was an additional factor that is not isolated for heritage language learners by any means, but certainly essential for them, and that was that the language instruction and the content of the curriculum had to be anchored in their cultural realities. That if you're reading, you don't all have to read the same book. The issue is reading. The issue is obtaining information from a text. The issue is expression of opinion about the text etc. And so the important element here was to make sure that the content of what you were teaching was anchored in the cultural realities of these students so that they could in fact acquire the kinds of understandings of their own culture that they might not have had, or to augment the reality 
and the appreciation of their own cultures. And in doing that, to provide them all with an opportunity to share the riches of their own cultures with each other. And that can be translated to our foreign language classrooms where we are not necessarily dealing with heritage language learners, but where we anchor what we do and the performance of those communicative functions in the rich human reality and the rich human interaction that is, in fact, our class. And to think of our class as being an exchange between English-dominant speakers and speakers of the native language, and allowing that to be the context that Alice Omaggio talks about, allowing that to become the theme of the thematic instruction. And if you do that, you make sure that your students are performing the communicative functions, that you are having them engage in the performance of those communicative functions using the modalities of the interpersonal, the interpretive, and the presentational. If you anchor it in the cultures of the students in the classroom and the realities of their everyday lives, your practices will follow because they'll be real. And you can take anything that you might get in a what do you do Monday morning session at a conference or a how-to book on teaching, you know, the Harry Wong of foreign language teaching. And then you can apply that um, in a more meaningful way. Thank you, John and Vicki. Um, I, I agree with what both Bill and John have said. And for me, when I think of best practices, I do think of the ACFEL standards, but in a little different way. When I think of com communities and cultural understanding, the first that comes to mind for communities is how do I build community in my classroom? So best practice for me from the onset is to build a community of learners who have a passion and who will learn to love learning and love learning a language. So I start with that. Any practice I do, has to be within a community feeling. So I have to build community, which means before I can think of the five national standards, I have to think of communicating with my students and making connections with them. And I always think of, I call it my Tito story, and this is a student who walks in. It's, I'm in a high school that has um, block scheduling. And it's first day of the second semester, and it's period 9-10. We have 80-minute classes, and I stand in the door, and I'm saying, oh, buenas tardes, how are you, you know, come here. And a student walks up and said, I heard about you, senora. I said, oh, yes? And he said, yeah, I don't do homework. No, don't do it. Haven't done it for anybody. Don't plan on doing it this semester. Heard all about you. I said, well, what do you do? I told you I don't do homework. I said, I, I have that message. I said, but what do you do? What do you mean, what do I do? Well, if you don't do homework, you must do something in your free time. Well, yeah, I play hockey. I said, oh, that's great. You play hockey. 
I have a nephew who plays hockey. And I knew I had made a connection. And that connection was so important. Now, I'm not telling you I got homework from Tito that first week of school, because his cell phone went off the first day. No. And, and it was his hockey coach. And anyway, but the point is, I was connecting with Tito. And I found out something that he was interested in. And so what John says about reading, and they have to be able to, they don't have to read the same book. They don't have to do the same reading on the, on the same day. And sometimes that concept is foreign to our students, that they all don't have to be doing the same thing on the same day. So when I think of best practices, I think of passion that the teacher has, that we all have, I think of all the best practices that do go on in our building and in our department. And I think of building the communities. Before I can teach about the global communities, the communities in other countries, I have to establish a real sense of community in my classroom. So I take those five national standards and I try to apply them from the beginning build a community, connect with my students, communicate with my students, make those valuable personal connections, and then my practices, my teaching strategies fall into place because I am focused on the learner and what the learner needs and the interests of the learner because it is all about them. And so my best practices always have to include listening to the student voice. That student voice is so important. That best practice has to include an evaluation mid-semester, at the end of the semester. What did you like? And yes, at first, we should have had more cooking days. You know, you didn't show enough movies. You didn't take us to New York enough. You didn't... And I said, I, I realize all that, and you can put that down and that's fine, but let's get to the nitty gritty. What did you really, what really helped you learn? Did this activity really, I need their feedback. I need that student voice. For my practices to become the best practices, I have to anchor that in the student voice as well as the teacher voice. I should never have said that we didn't talk beforehand. <laughs> I, I know. I mean, it's just... <laughs> because it's really quite extraordinary yes, that, uh, but that you, we're what all you say on the same, you know, we're all in the same um, place, and I find that fascinating, really. It, it's true. So. Okay, for our second question, John's going to be beginning the conversation on this one. What practitioners have played a major role in your career, and in what ways? Well... I'm going to date myself in a sense and mention two people who probably um, are unknown to most of you, but certainly those of us who have been around Nicefelt as long as I have. Um, they are first Tony Papalia, who was at, um, at, at um, State University Buffalo for many years and was a past president of Nicefelt. And the reason uh, I mentioned Tony was because he was a leader in our profession at the time when we were switching from the grammar-based to the communication-based paradigm. And he was a leader in that in New York State. And I was a young teacher and had 
done some work in, you know, in language acquisition and, and methodologies and that type of thing. And what makes him memorable is that Tony provided me as a young teacher with an opportunity to, to express myself in a professional venue um, that I feel launched my own career. It was the first time in my life that someone of, of that stature, of Tony's stature, um, had said to me, what you're doing and what you're thinking are valid enough to be shared with others. And that came quite as a surprise to me, but it was enormously reassuring. And it was truly because of that that I <laughs> got precocious. You know, <laughs> and went on to think I could assume positions in, you know, in leadership in foreign languages, which I, you know, went on to do. But it was because of Tony. And, um, you know, as I, as I have matured, hopefully, in the, my career, and as all of us mature in our careers, I think that it's so important for us to um, make sure that the newer, the younger voices in our profession have an opportunity to be heard and that we mentor them so that they can self-actualize in a very important way. Um, the research on teacher retention um, indicates that it's that kind of opportunity that will keep people in the profession. Um, it's listed in the research on pre-retirement attrition um, as one of the most significant variables, and certainly Tony served that for me. The other one was Joe Viesha, who for many years was at State University Oswego, and it's with Joe, once again, uh, a very knowledgeable voice in the profession who spent many, many hours with me exploring ideas on language acquisition and methodology that um, empowered me in my and helped me to form my own thinking. There are so many people, um, my own students. I, I have several students who, when I was at Hunter College, um, went through my program and um, went on to be teachers in New York City public schools and some of them in the most challenging environments that you could ever imagine. One of them told me the story about, you know, the, uh, the security guard who said to one of the students on the way to the school one morning, all right, one gun I can see, but two? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and things like that. And that, not, that's not to say that all city schools are like that, but I'm talking about this is the kind of environment that some of them taught in. And they taught me once again, to get back to this whole business about effective practices, if you will, because all of this is interconnected, they told me that the most important element of their success, and they were so successful that they stayed for years and years and years, and then when they finally moved to affluent school districts on Long Island, they decided they were going to come back to New York because they much preferred to work with um, the urban student population. They helped me to identify the value and the, the essential value of teacher respect for students. That respect f 
for student, uh, students who are in the toughest, the roughest situations in New York City are deeply attuned to the notion of respect. And they want it above all things. And when the teacher, in the face of everything and every challenge that those students throw in their face, they want respect. And many times these kids throw these challenges to find out if you're going to respect them. And then once you have proven that you do, that you respect them as human beings, they'll respond to you. I learned that from my own students because I never taught in the environment that they have taught in. And I learned about that from my own students. Um, they taught me that you'd have to be dressed properly as a teacher, even in the most tough urban environments. That the men go with jackets and ties, and the women go with skirts and blouses or dresses, looking like the professional, because these kids want to be taught by a professional who is proud. They would say to my students, you know, why do you come dressed like that? You like what you're doing? And ultimately, the question would boil down to, you like us or something? And these are truths about teaching that I never would have known, <laughs> you know if it hadn't been for what my own students taught me. And so, you know, the teacher as the lifelong learner, <laughs> you know, you learn from those uh, whom you teach. And finally, from those hundred teachers of heritage language learners, you know, who, who really did introduce to me, and it's all related, the importance of respecting, not just respecting, knowing, coming to know and understand, and respecting enough to include in instruction the world of the student. I'll tell you a quick story about, you know, talk about reading the same book. Um, one, of my, one of my students, once again, um, was teaching in a heritage language uh, program at, at a New York City high school, and he had the students all select a book by an author um, from their own country. And he had dozens and dozens of books on the table in the back of the room. And um, there was this one young man, um, from, happened to be from the Dominican Republic, who about a week and a half into the reading unit that they were doing hadn't started reading his book. He didn't have a book. And so the teacher said to him, you know, why haven't you started? And the the kid said, I don't have my book. And the teacher said, well, the book is on the table in the back of the room. And the kid said, but you, mister, you don't understand. This is the first time that I will have read a book by an author from my own country, and I wanted the book to come from there. And so I asked a member of my family to send it to me. Those are the kinds of things that I learned from those teachers of heritage languages. So in many respects, 
you know, it's the other teachers whom I've had the privilege of working with who have taught me the most important lessons of my life. Thank you, John. Thank and you. Vicki? Well, it is curious. Um, when you talk about practitioners who have played a role, Tony Papaya was my master thesis advisor <laughs> at the University of Buffalo, so the same name comes up twice. Um, and yes, he was a very big influence, um, tapping, tapping me on the shoulders, you know, getting his graduate students involved in NICEFELT. Um, so when I look at that question and I think of practitioners who play a role, I think first of practitioners at the local level. And in my own school, I think of Sue and Beth and how they took me under their wing when I first started out at Horseheads and mentored me before there were mandated mentoring programs or before the word was in vogue. Um, they were two members of the language department and they, that's what they did with new teachers. They mentored them. I think of practitioners on the state level and certainly I think of Nicefelt. I think of people like Al Martino, another one who tapped me on the shoulder, become involved in your state organization. Um, so I think there are practitioners at every level who do play a role in our professional development as teachers. Um, and certainly our students, as John mentioned, our students do, and what more rewarding experience is it to have a former student who becomes a language teacher and then is teaching next door to you. And you are learning from them. You are now learning from someone who was your student, as John said. So, and this all ties into the first question of best practices, because when we have practitioners who are effective teachers themselves, who have a passion for what they're doing, um, and they do play a role in our professional development, they affect our best practices, and they make our best practices better. Thank you, and Bill. Unlike my two esteemed colleagues here, I did not set out to become a language teacher. I was an elementary classroom teacher for nine years before I entered um, secondary uh, language teaching. <clears throat> and um, I uh, crazily uh, left, walked away from the elementary classroom, which I loved, teaching fifth and sixth graders, um, at a time that was probably the most exciting time in language teaching since the invention of papyrus. Um, it was that time that John alluded to when we were making that transition from the grammar-based, literature-based curriculum to the communicative one. And we had the most, when state ed was state ed, we had the most dynamic team on, of world language specialists there. Um, Paul Dammer, Dolores Mita, they were phenomenal individuals that shepherded the most visionary curriculum for language teaching that the country has seen and we haven't yet realized. Um, it was the, so the uh, language um, requirement was being phased in. 
starting with uh, the first uh, administration of the proficiency exam in 1989. And I entered in 1987 teaching uh, Spanish. And I am the high school Spanish teacher in a very small rural high school. Um, I teach, <laughs> every day I teach levels one, two, three, four, and combination five, six in six periods. I have, I have two level threes. And uh, so it, it's, it's a very interesting and wonderful day. But I get to see the rewards of, um, of uh, what I do in the early grades and what my colleagues in the middle school are doing as well. And it, it's a wonderfully rewarding job. And uh, it's, it's terrific. And that I would not have lasted or succeeded were it not for the uh, divine interventions of, of very significant people. Um, the first of whom was uh, a lady named Joanne Dickinson, who was um, who badgered us to the point to join ISFL to the point where we wanted to get we just did it to get her off our back. We we signed up just to get Joanne off her back, and that one uh, fiat allowed me to become in contact with all these wonderful <coughs> professionals who were in undergoing the same transition. My elementary training served me better than the literature and grammar training that my colleagues who were already in the profession had had. I knew about how to manage a three-ring circus because I taught elementary school. So, um, and my, my colleagues who were, you know, had literature degrees were appalled by the possibility that, you know, of having pair activities and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, what's this? No big deal, you know? So, um, three preps, no problem, you know? Um, yeah, well, yeah. No, three preps for one period. Oh, yeah. One period. yeah. <laughs> okay. That was like a twelve. That was, <laughs> when you when you teach elementary school, reading is three preps, mm -hmm. and that, and then you go to math, and you know that's another three. But um, so it was the best training I ever had. But I wasn't a language teacher yet, and those people from Nicefell, you know, grabbed me in and 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 turned me into a language teacher, and I am. I'll tell you a few names. One, the, one of the first things, I went to a workshop, an all-day workshop up at RIT for, um, with John D'Amato. One of the textbook companies had brought John D'Amato in. And I tell you, in that day, I think he talked for six hours. It wasn't a day, it wasn't a day of, of interaction. You know? it, was, it was John talking for six hours. And, but he had me every moment. And I've got to tell you, um, there were things he said that stopped me in my tracks. Things like never expect a kid to do in his second language what he can't do in his first. Stop me in my tracks. And I thought, holy cow, let me think about that one. And then, of course, he was going on for another, you know, three hours. And, or he would say, you know, what is the role of grammar? The role of, role of grammar is to render communication accurate. It's like, wow. And how do we start to teach a lot of times? We start to teach like we were taught, and yet we were inventing a whole new way of teaching languages and approaching languages. So John was very, and, and I got to hear him yesterday, and it was hard for me to imagine that he could have been more passionate and more um, um, urgent in his message than he was when I saw him 20 years ago. But he is. He's, he's more passionate, more urgent, and more um, adamant than ever about, about his message. Um, and if you've never seen John the Baptist, if you've never seen John the Baptist, John D'Amato, think if John the Baptist were from Sicily, that, 
that would be John. Um, the second people I want to uh, give a shout out to are Bob um, Pontario and Jean Lelou, founders of um, FL Teach, another incredibly uh, seminal organ in creating a, a community of learners, learning professional learning community, again, before that term was fashionable, yeah. Yeah. and uh, as the internet was just forming. And the amazing online faculty room that me and Perry, little Perry in my own classroom, I had the world at my disposal in terms of foreign language teachers. Mm -hmm. And through that, I got the encouragement to go to other conferences in the Northeast and ACTBO for the first time. And eventually, the people who I met first online became uh, colleagues and then now dear friends. And I have the, the honor and joy of being inspired by lifelong learners that, and Vicki mentioned that, the lifelong learners like, um, like Ellen Schrager and Marilyn Barretta and Sarah Shackelford and all the people I've gotten to know over the years through Bob and Jean's vision of FL Teach. Um, I realized too quickly that, I, that it wasn't good enough just to be a good pedagogue. You all, I also had to be a scholar of my language. And these people got me up to speed and got me up to speed fast. And to them, I am eternally grateful. Um, I can only hope to be able to give a thimble full of inspiration to younger teachers in comparison to the barrels full of professional support that I've received from these people and from professional organizations. Thanks, Bill. Our final question for the day that Vicki's going to start with, how can we, as a profession, improve our practice? How can we create a culture of seeking out and embracing best practices at all levels? Well, I'm going to tag on something that Bill just mentioned. And one of the first ways, and I go back to the word communities, because I do think we need to stay connected with each other. And you mentioned online communities. And that certainly is one of the ways in the 21st century that we can utilize to stay connected and to improve our practice. We need each other. We need to stay connected to each other. We need to continue our communications with each other. This morning, this whole conference is a very good example of how do we continue to improve our best practices. We do that through staying connected with one another, attending conferences, and yes, forming professional learning communities, not only within our own building, but at the local, at the state, national, and global level. We have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn from Ning, social networking on Ning, social networking on the ACFELD online community, um, social networking. Now NECFEL will have a wiki page. NYSEFELT um, has a wonderful website, way to stay connected with your colleagues. And because it's one thing to have a professional learning community within your own building and within your own department. Yes, that's important. You want your department to embrace best practices. And you start at a local level. I always say, I think big. I start small, um, think globally, start locally, tap that colleague next door. You know, we always say when we're teaching with our students, find the one, you know, find the things that they do well. Focus on the positive. 
And I always say, think they can, think they can't. Either way, you're correct. And if we think about that with our colleagues and best practices, and tap your colleague next door and say, hey, I'm doing a presentation or I'm going to a conference. Do you want to come? Do you want to come with me? Do you want to come and present? Invite people. Invite your colleagues. Um, they want, they, they're good ideas. Validate them. Have them share them. And then move to the state level, to the national level, global. How do you move to the global level? The online community. Certainly, FL Teach was one of the first. And now we have many, many ways to connect with our colleagues. But it all goes back to one of the first words I mentioned, and that was communities. And that's how we improve our best practices and how we embrace them through communities, communities of professionals communicating with one another, connecting with one another. Thank you. Bill? When I first started, when I looked at this question, I thought, oh, kind of look it into the future. And I thought, boy, I'm going to be on a panel with the Oracle of Delphi <laughs> and uh, Nostradamus, and <laughs> I, I would be the Travelocity gnome. Um, <laughs> But one of, one of my uh, um, one of the things I, I thought about is is that um, when we're trying to improve our practice as a profession, that we really need to start with what we agree upon, or or find out what we agree upon. And one of the most powerful exercises that I ever did with um, a, a, my department was spending a morning working on what we called the hallmarks of excellence, which crystallized for us the characteristics that we all agreed upon would promote in our classroom, would help our, that would help our students gain communicative proficiency in accordance with the philosophy statement behind our New York State load standards. So we took the philosophy statement, we read it and said, okay, what will this look like for us? What can we agree upon that how we're gonna get there? And we developed these hallmarks of excellence. And by starting with what we agreed upon, everything else fell into place. So we didn't have the factions that you find in some departments. You didn't have the, the wars of the, the um, method wars of uh, one against the other. By starting out what we had in common, we developed a respect for one another. And as long as we knew, kept that, uh, those hallmarks in mind, we, could, we were free to experiment on how best to get there. Uh, this led to an openness to new approaches and methods that we sought out through professional conferences. And um, for larger departments, I would recommend developing common assessments that are agreed upon, that will be given to all students and that will weight equally for all students. And once you focus on the common assessments, then teachers are free to seek the best ways to get there. And I think that that's uh, critical to develop that community of that trust that's the base of professional community. The second thing I think that I see coming for us to be advantageous is, again, technology, but to bring just-in-time professional development. And uh, NYSEFELT's pioneering with that with some of our webinars. And uh, I see more of that type of stuff becoming available to us as... Um, when teachers, when they see a need in their own practice, will seek out resources to 
um, improve that practice. But until they see it sometimes in their own life, they don't see its relevance. So to be able to provide in a flexible way a just-in-time um, opportunity for them through technology, I think, has great power and great potential. And we can do it with technology in a way we never could before. And the third thing that I think is going to be critical for us moving forward is to support our professional organizations, um, like the Northeast Conference and like our state organizations. Despite the proliferation of online solutions, there's still a critical need for face-to-face -face networking opportunities like those provided at professional conferences. And as language teachers, we know better than most the powerful relationships that can only be created and nurtured through some face-to-face -face opportunities for dialogue and enrichment. There is a real hunger for staff development strategically st uh, targeted for foreign language teachers. So much of the staff development provided by school districts and intermediate units is geared toward the NCLB tested areas or generic approaches like differentiated instruction or understanding by design. A nearly 300-page book on, under, on integrating understanding by design with differentiated instruction had two pages on how to apply that to foreign language. And it, it was based on a French unit on the Little Prince. That was it, whopping two pages. So we have to get together to try and apply those principles to our own reality as language teachers. To, to give you an idea of the hunger, a couple weeks ago at our Rochester Regional Conference, I had 50 people on a Saturday morning sitting in a very hot room with me um, talking about um, how to make the best use of class time strategies for beginning and ending your class um, in, a, in a meaningful way and making milking every minute out of a class period. There's a hunger there. People will come if you bring it to them. And I think that um, our professional organizations are, are going to be challenged now to decentralize sometimes because of the budget constraints we're under in terms of travel to find ways to decentralize the dissemination of professional development opportunities and to, and to bring it to them. And if we bring it to them, I believe that they will they will respond very positively toward that. Yeah, on those very, that very note, um, the issue of professional development is, is key. Uh, one of the reasons why I arrived here at the last minute was that the past chairs of the Northeast Conference were, were meeting to discuss that very issue. You know, how do you make the Northeast Conference more than a capsule in time? Because, once again, as I said, pre-retirement attrition, another variable in that is the, what causes it is an absence of meaningful, meaningful professional development that's not one size fits all, mm -hmm. that's not one time only, and that type of thing that's ongoing, and how do we achieve that? in a time of austerity, and I think that Nicefelt's move toward webinars is really a very, very important, um, an important one in helping to address that because clearly professional organizations are going to be able to provide for teachers what individual school districts simply can't afford to do and have it meaningful. And so I think that this is the new place, you know, the new reality for professional organizations right now is finding out how they can provide that kind of professional enrichment in more non-traditional sorts of ways. Um, I had maybe the good fortune to, when I went to Princeton, become a generalist, you know. I 
moved into the world of preparing teachers in all of the subject areas, and that's been enormously enlightening and um, anxiety-producing at the same time. And so what I'm going to, the, the, the perspective, I think, that I'm going to bring to my remarks on this really come from, um, you know, how you zoom out and take a look. But in zooming out, thinking about how it really impacts uh, the foreign language profession. The first thing I think that we've got to do, and, and it's been referred to really here in the word communities, um, we've, we really do have to talk with our colleagues from the other disciplines more. Because they know things that we don't, necessarily. They don't know things that we do. And it creates that community of professionals that is so essential and which the younger members of our profession are craving for. They don't like it that we go into our rooms and close the door and, you know, because we always said in teaching, it doesn't matter what happens outside, you can always go and you can close your door and the class is yours. We liked that, you know, we old timers. Um, but the younger teaching population doesn't like that. They don't want to be in closed doors. They want to interact. And so um, this is a, it's a, I think it's the ideal direction in which to go. Can I give you an example of that, yeah. what you're talking about? In, in our district, we had a, an initiative identified by our administrative team to come to us about, after we've examined all of the data, we understand that there is a deficiency in the vocabulary level of the students. Well, tell us something we didn't know. But what happened was, because vocabulary is really my stock in trade, um, there, we were able to um, work out something where I was able to present some information about, how, about acquiring vocabulary, some techniques and methodologies that I use in my classroom that I could adapt to show how the, the, world, uh, the world history teacher could help their students acquire their, the massive vocabulary that they have, and even in math. And I, had, I found examples of how to, how to help them adapting my ideas to an a, a, a eighth grade geometry unit and adapting it to a 10th grade uh, history unit. And so we as language teachers have a lot to share in the world of literacy and, and especially building background information and vocabulary. And I just want to toss that in. No, that's, you, yeah. that's very important for others to know that. And you know, and, and I and speaking of literacy, I really think that we've got to get on the literacy bandwagon. We claim that the study of a foreign language contributes to the development of literacy, but by and large, as a foreign language profession, we haven't really demonstrated it yet. You know, we need to have more administrators who will say, I became more board members who, who will say, I became a better reader because of my foreign language instruction. You know, and so, you know, and so we, we've got to become a part of the literacy movement. We've got to be contributors to the those elements of teaching that have become the focus of instruction. Because if we don't, we're going to be eliminated. Um, social studies is on its way out, uh, for example because it's, you know, it can be embedded in other subjects where the focus is literacy, and so on and so forth. So we need to talk with our language arts colleagues, and we need to talk with our language arts colleagues in particular about teaching heritage language learners, because the teaching of heritage language learners is exactly what they do. 
and they can provide us with a great deal of assistance. We need to talk with our science colleagues. They are getting deep into inquiry and subject area mapping with the science atlas that shows what the continuum of learning is. We've got enormous things to learn from them, and we need to talk with our math colleagues because they are going through exactly the same paradigm shift that foreign languages went through back in the late 80s, moving from computational to problem solving. Their language is identical, and we would be so enriched by talking with the math people, and we could be enormously helpful. So that's one area in which we must engage. The other is assessment. You know that all of our programs are going to be judged based on our students' performance. That's the bottom line. It's student performance, student performance, student performance. Even teacher preparation programs are going to have to demonstrate that our students, the graduates of our programs, are effectively teaching their students five years out. Right now, we are surveying our, our graduates to get permission to contact their supervisors to find out how well they're doing. And the next step that we've got to do is actually get from the schools in which our students are teaching data on student performance that we have to use in order to be accredited as a program in teacher preparation. It is all about student performance data. And we're not talking about nice little things. And it's here. It and has it's arrived. Here. It has arrived. And it, so we've got to, as a profession, we've got to come together on how we assess proficiency. There are tests available that enable us to assess proficiency so that we can give our students proficiency ratings. And that's the direction we must go because we've got to have quantitative evidence. And yesterday in a wonderful um, presentation on portfolios by Rebecca Fox from George Mason, Mason uh, we got into a, a rich conversation about how you would go about assessing the other four C's through portfolio. The s communication C, you know, we can, we can assess through proficiency assess assessment. We've got to do it. We've got to be able to say that our students get intermediate low, intermediate high, mid, intermediate high. We've got to move in that direction. And then we've got the other C's. Well, professional uh, portfolios, student portfolios, where they demonstrate their growth in the other C's is an ideal way to do it, but we can't just do it as a nice little thing that we send home to parents. We've got to develop rubrics that enable us to assess the progress of our students because the, the standards that we have suggest an order, a hierarchy, in the acquiring of skills related to the other C's, and we've got to be able to quantify them. I know we hate it. Teachers rail against it, but that's, the, that's what we've got to do in order to remain viable. So we've got to have a means for assessing our student performance. 
And then we need, a, to, I, we need to develop a professional development continuum, a professional growth continuum that identifies that people enter the profession at the novice level and they increase their proficiency going along and we have to be able to identify what that continuum is and then we have to be open to new ideas like the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> You know, we may, we, we can yell about it all we want, and we can go, yuck, and I don't know what all, but Rosetta Stone right now is here to stay, and there are colleges and universities all over the country replacing the elementary language programs with Rosetta Stone, and we've got school districts increasingly that are using the Rosetta Stone. Well, it's here. And so we've got to be able to identify how we make the Rosetta Stone effective with us. That the Rosetta Stone is not effective without us. And when we do that, then we will have helped ourselves to address some of the challenges that face the profession. It's inevitable. Rosetta Stone is only the first. It's going to happen in science, believe you me, because science and math instruction in this country are at crisis points. You know, the state of New Jersey, for example, produced seven physics teachers. They certified seven physics teachers last year, the largest number of any state in the country. There's going to be a Rosetta Stone for the teaching of physics. There will be a Rosetta Stone for the teaching of chemistry. It's inevitable. And so foreign languages, we've always led the race. And so this is our moment <laughs> to um, show the world how you work effectively <laughs> with computer-assisted instruction. Because there are virtual high schools. There are virtual there high is, schools. I, I attended a, a session, and the presenter told us about a virtual global high school that has 15 students in 15 different countries who meet every day virtually online. It's here, and I like to refer to it as a hybrid model. The hybrid model, as John said, how do we work with it, with us? Because that's really what we're talking about, is integrating the technology, the virtual classes and high schools that are out there with the person. And the funny thing is we may end up coming full circle back to where many of us started as language learners, in language labs. We, you know, we'll all have, instead of having the, the huge headsets, we'll have them in front of of screens, but you know, I think the maybe the who knows the language lab might make a comeback. It will look differently, certainly. It will look very. Or it does. I'm sure that this has opened up a lot of questions in your mind. At this time, we welcome the audience to present questions either to the whole panel or to the individuals on the panel. And I will ask the panelists to paraphrase briefly the question for the sake of the audio cast. Uh, does anyone out there have a question?
is it fair to ever tell a either a colleague or someone say that is is a student teaching you know what this isn't for you um, you don't have what it takes in my in my view um, I want to mentor but I also want to be fair to our students and and to you ultimately um, I mean are you ever put in this position um, and, and and if so I mean how does one delicately and respectfully tell um, a colleague to pursue something else we're expected to um, first of all, the accreditation. Oh, yes. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> Would you please? <laughs> the, the question was um, involving the quality of teachers, and it was specifically in New York State, that if you find a colleague or a student teacher or a beginning teacher who might not necessarily be of the highest quality, is it fair? Is it our place? Has it ever happened to us that we should tell them or discourage them in any way? Yeah, um, and the first of all, we have to. Um, the accreditation, the accrediting agencies require that we show what our gateways are. Um, and uh, the criteria that we use to determine whether a teacher stays, a student teacher stays or leaves. Um, the answer is yes, and um, the the issue here, and this is an issue that applies for us in teacher preparation as it does for us as supervisors. Um, I'll, I'll never forget the first teacher that, as a department chairman, I had to uh, let go. I was real brave about it. The teacher got the letter, and I didn't go near my office for three days <laughs> because I couldn't face him. I stayed in the music room. But, um, you know, <laughs> that's when I was young. Um, the issue is documentation that it, it's only fair to an individual that we provide, that we, that we maintain documentation. Um, and here's where unions have schools over a barrel. I, I taught a course in education, or a, a seminar in education reform last week at Princeton, and, and one of the big gripes among the Princeton students was that incompetent teachers are allowed to stay. And they blame it on the unions. They see the unions, and, and the community sees it as a union issue. And by and large, it's not a union issue. I was a union president, a vice president, and, and had to defend people who were incompetent before the Board of Education, and, and we won every time because there wasn't adequate documentation. So what we, and here is where it's so important to make sure that we operationalize the standards in a way that enables supervisors <clears throat> excuse me, to document teacher performance in such a way that we can present the evidence to the person as well as to everyone else as to why this individual should no longer continue. I think that you know, in all fairness to people, we've, and here's where the professional development issue comes into play, um, uh, and along with our operationalization of the standards so that we can identify on the standards exactly what the, the, the problems are, the deficiencies as well as the strengths, of course, but the deficiencies in this case because they are the target, what those deficiencies are, 
that we can prescribe professional development to address those proficiencies, document the remediation that that teacher undergoes, and then say that at the end of this, the teacher either reaches the standard or must be asked to leave. Now, this is hard work, but we, we, we must do it. We owe it to ourselves and but to the students fair. to do it. This but it's fair. It's fair. And we have, when you talk about teacher quality, we have to define it. Teacher effectiveness has to be articulated to everyone, just as we have rubrics for our students to tell them what proficiency level they're at. We must have those same rubrics, as John has mentioned, those same standards, and they must be articulated they must be communicated to at the student prior to student mm -hmm. teaching at the student teaching level and at the beginning teaching level and everyone must have those sta clear cut standards from administration to teachers to unions it doesn't matter everyone's working from the same page the same rubrics it's fair to everyone and just as we would tell our students here's where your deficiency is, as John mentioned, you have a document mm -hmm. and you ask them to reflect on it. Do you mm -hmm. feel you're strong in this area? And if you're not, let's talk about why you're not. Mm -hmm. What can we do to remediate that? And there may come a time where they don't reach those articulated standards. But in all fairness to everyone, they are there, they are shared, and there is articulation, and I think that's crucial. I teach undergraduate methods at SUNY Geneseo, and I've done so for about 10 years, and I, I think it's an act of kindness to tell somebody honestly, you're not meant to do this. Mm -hmm. And I tell my undergraduates at the beginning of the semester, I say to them, many of you will, in this course, decide that teaching is not for you. You will have learned a profound lesson, and nothing, you will have nothing to regret. And many of them do decide after methods that, that they're not going to, that they shouldn't do that. Or my companion uh, course is a workshop course where the students have to actually pre present to their peers lessons completely in target language. Sometimes they have a major breakthrough there that eh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, you know. And if you give them honest feedback at the beginning, you can avoid a lot of drama and tragedy later on. Um, and, and some of my kids, you know, finish the methods course, they finish it with success, but then decide, no, nope, teaching's not for me, I'm gonna take my language major and do something else. And again, that, I think it's an act of kindness to, to, to be honest with them. And uh, they, and, and sometimes with a, a, um, a t you can see the relief when you broach the subject with them. You know, are you happy doing this? Or is, is this something that you think is gonna make you happy? And, and it's like you've unburdened them and they can talk about it. No, they hate planning lessons. And I, I tell them, I said, honey, this is your life for the next 35 years. If you don't like doing one lesson that you have three weeks to prepare, imagine, you know, five overnight have to appear, you know. Uh, if you don't like it now, it doesn't get any better. And, um, and so I've driven many from the profession. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I could, you know, with, with, with that honesty. Thank you. But we have to be careful because there was, a, there was an infamous case in upstate New York, as a matter of fact, that made national news um, that sent reverberations through the teacher preparation community. And it was in a college in upstate New York 
where it was decided by the education faculty that the teacher should not go on, should not go into student teaching. Because, of course, you see in the national teaching standards, there's knowledge and understanding vis-a-vis -vis the standards, there is performances, and then there is this wonderful thing called dispositions. Well, when we start assessing dispositions, we're in deep doo-doo. You know, ETS is currently working on an assessment to determine disposition, teacher dispositions. Well, I, got, I told the people over at ETS the other day at a, at a review session that, that Tess gave me the heebie-jeebies. You know, people like Goebbels and Hitler would have loved it. You know, and so we have to be really careful about this business of dispositions. Well, it was on the basis of dispositions that the student was advised out of the program. Well, the, stu the, the, the student sued the institution and won. And very frankly, the teacher is employed in a public school district in upstate New York and very happily, thank you very much, and very effectively. So, you know, it, it is, we, we've, we've got to become, as, as, as both people have said, we've got to become really astute in the way in which we evaluate our, the effectiveness of our teachers. And we're fortunate that we do have the standards upon which to base that evaluation. But then we've also got this issue of student performance. You know, and how we evaluate student performance and whether the students are growing, whether their performance is improving under the teacher's tutelage. Are the students moving from novice mid to, you know, intermediate low during the course of a year? And if they're not, the teacher's accountable. And this is kind of new to us. So, you know, we've, we, we've got to begin to think this through because we don't have adequate instruments or paradigms to guide us quite yet in the assessment of teacher effectiveness that we are going to have to develop. We have to develop them because, it's, yes. as Vicki said, it's here. It's here. Mm -hmm. Multiple measures. Multiple measures. I'm sure that several of you do have questions, but we really are at the end of our time, and we welcome you to stay a little bit and speak individually with some of our people before the next presentation. We thank you, the audience, for your participation in our Practices That Inspire session. And if you'd like to know more about what NYSEFELT is doing, in 15 minutes we have our showcase panel where we will be telling all about NYSEFELT's different initiatives including our Summer Institute, which is August 3 through 6. Um, it's taking place on the Oneonta campus, and the topic is what's hot in LOAT, and hot's not the climate, it's higher order thinking skills. In October 15, 16, and 17, uh, we have our annual um, conference in Rochester where the topic is the I generation. We're now working with students who were born after the, the emergence of computers, unlike the rest of us. So we welcome you to come to those events. We've got some handouts up here at your disposal. And finally, make sure that we do want to give total thanks to our webmaster, Ken, for doing our audio cast today, and to our incredible panel, Bill Heller, John Webb, and Vicki Mike. <laughs>